Please do join me in taking out your Bibles once again and turning to Ecclesiastes chapter 12. Those of you that know me know that I don't do social media, but I like to, uh, hopefully in the best possible sense, take advantage of social media. I like to eavesdrop on some folks out there and um, kind of stay abreast of uh, some current things going on. And I uh, visited a a friend's social media account uh, the other day and and read these words. Uh, He was making... um, the observation that many in and around the church need a boogeyman. They are, quote, always looking for a big arch enemy out there to fear. And in particular, he says, quote, we are always looking for explanations of big systems, of how it all fits together. We want to make sense of our world and are often way too confident in our abilities to offer explanations. We make ourselves experts in things we are not just, we are not, with just a little bit of reading and one or two lectures by popular speakers, art, economics, political theory, intellectual history. I've done it, he says, way too much, especially when younger and had suffered less. We try too hard to make sense of the world, flesh, and the devil, when sometimes they just don't. We don't have to know everything or what God or even the devil is doing. We don't even understand our own hearts. Which is to say, more Ecclesiastes, less people who are overconfident, who are sure and certain. More Ecclesiastes. I I, I texted him and said, hey, I just read this, Uh, thanks, I think this is gonna help me with an introduction to this last message uh, from Ecclesiastes, and he sent me a thumbs up in response. Well, for 18 weeks, we've been getting more Ecclesiastes. And I'm hopeful that not only the last 17 weeks, but today and in the days to come, we will benefit from more Ecclesiastes. Let's pray. Father, we know that we cannot live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from your mouth. And we thank you, Father, for this hard-to-understand book in the Old Testament. We thank you, Father, for uh, giving us the perseverance to continue to plod our way through it. And we pray now as we wrap up, as we come to a point of arrival, it would also be a point of departure where we can take what we've learned about you and your ways and put them to good use as we walk by faith in Jesus Christ and not by sight, for we pray in his name. Amen. At the beginning, the preacher, Solomon, says, all is vanity. Literally, it's mist, it's vapor, it's smoke. But in other words, life is, is fleeting and life is empty. And toward the end, we saw last week, he proclaims again, all is vanity. Today, we're going to see those particular words that we've been hearing week in and week out that that Ecclesiastes, between all is vanity and all is vanity, has words of pleasure, words of pain, words that help provide perspective, and we'll see that today, fear God and keep his commandments, 
and words that call us to prepare for the inevitable death and judgment that we all face. Ecclesiastes has been helping us stay anchored to our calling to live by faith and not by sight in a fallen and frustrating world. Ecclesiastes wants us to see, the preacher wants us to know that life without God, life under the sun without God is empty. But life with God, life as it were above the sun and beyond the sun is fulfilling. Ecclesiastes has faced us chapter, as we've been faced chapter after chapter, verse after verse with the hard reality of the little that we do know. The little that we know and the extent, the vast extent of what we cannot control. We've been saying that Ecclesiastes does not have or even claim to have all the answers, but it's been helping us know and love and serve God even when we don't have all the answers. In other words, it helps us to walk by faith and not by sight. Before we head into our text uh, today, I want to just go back uh, and make a few comments about last week. Uh, Before it's too late, we looked at chapter 11, verse 7 through chapter 12, verse 8, and we started and ended with this question, you know, when is a deadline not really a deadline? And when is a deadline really a deadline? We see in that text the call to learn to do two things before it's really too late. Two things, to enjoy life and to prepare for death. And our texts, like all texts in the Old Testament, lean forward to the coming Messiah. They lean forward to Jesus. And we, we, we begin to see some lessons that are learned by following him. You see, because Jesus himself enjoyed life, how did he do that? He obeyed his father. There was joy in obedience, obeying his father. And because Jesus enjoyed life by obeying his father, he enables us to enjoy life as well. Even life in a sinful and fallen, frustrating world, eating good meals, working, enjoying the friendship. There are good things in life. And because Jesus prepared for death, how did Jesus prepare for death? By trusting his Father. Because Jesus prepared for death, he enables us to prepare for death as well. How? By trusting our Father. You see, Ecclesiastes is all about walking by faith and not by sight. And through faith in Jesus, we are able to enjoy life And we are able to prepare for death before it really is too late. Let's get to our text. So join me as I read verses 9 through 14 of chapter 12. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh." 
the end of the matter. All has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. We're going to unpack and explore our text under two major headings. What the preacher said, verses 9 through 10, and what we should hear, verses 13 and 14. What the preacher said and what we should hear, or put a bit differently, where are we and where do we go from here? We've come to the end. You see, these last few verses of Ecclesiastes are our place of arrival and our place of departure. So first, what the preacher said, verses 9 through 12. Well, let's remind ourselves of what he said uh, just previous to this. Verse 8, vanity of vanities, says the preacher, all is vanity. It echoes what he said in the second verse of the book. It's that multi-purpose metaphor to express the futility of life in a fallen world. Again, vanity, not meaninglessness as much as emptiness. Literally, that breath, that vapor that's here today and gone tomorrow that you cannot capture in your hands despite trying. It's like chasing the wind we read several times. You know, why did he repeat himself? Well, here at the end, we're back to where we began and yet we're not the same people. We're not the same people as when we first read it. Because now we've got a bigger perspective, a better perspective. What's what's vanity? What's futility? What's ultimately empty work? Human wisdom, pleasure, power, possessions. It's all vanity. And death is that final vanity. Because of death, Solomon, the preacher, is saying life is fleeting. Indeed, when the human breath stops... So stops everything that was done for the duration of life. What the preacher said, all is vanity, all is fleeting, all is futile. But vanity does not have the last word. He could have stopped in verse 8, but there's this continued epilogue. Uh, Most likely it's written by Solomon, the preacher himself. Some think, no, it couldn't have been written by him because it changes the perspective. But authors do that at times. Vanity doesn't get the last word. He he wants to, to say why he said what he said. How did he say what he said? So let's think for a few minutes about how he said it. In particular, verses 9 through 10. You see, there is a logical clarity to what he wrote. The preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging. And what was he studying, weighing and arranging? Many proverbs with great care. He took time, he made the effort, he took the trouble to evaluate and include certain things in this book. You see, you could really break this book down, I think, like this. There's an opening statement of the theme, verses 1 through 11 of chapter 1. And then he, 
he invites us and we join him on a quest to find meaning in life. And it goes all the way from chapter 1, verse 12 to the end of chapter 6. He introduces the theme and then he says, join me in my quest to find purpose and meaning in life under the sun. And then in chapters 7 through 11, he's wanting to show the reader, show us the difference between wisdom and folly. And then as we saw last week, he returns to death and dying and the vanity of it. So there's logical clarity. He, he, he's purposefully arranging. He's purposefully choosing. But there's also, it's not just logical, it's beautiful. There is literary artistry. Look how it's described. The preacher sought to find words of delight, words of, of beauty. Not just in Ecclesiastes, that can apply to all of Scripture, that, that, that it's beautiful. Thomas Wolfe, the American author, said of Ecclesiastes, it's the highest flower of poetry, eloquence, and truth. There are memorable phrases that are out and about in our culture that come from Ecclesiastes, and you remember them because you can sort of see them. Jonathan Edwards, in talking about preaching, you know, says you can describe a flower, you can describe the taste of honey, but you need to describe it in words that display its beauty, that display its, um, its taste. That's what Solomon has been doing. You know, th- this book is, is telling the story of salvation, just like the whole Bible tells the story of salvation. And to quote uh, one author, one commentator, he says, It's to please the ear, to inspire the imagination, to fascinate the mind, and to delight the soul. Solomon is not just concerned about arranging things logically, clearly. He wants to arrange those things because he's chosen beautiful things, delightful things, images that stick in your mind. Two are better than one. A strand of three chords is not easily broken. I mean, when you hear two are better than one, if one man falls, you know, there's another to pick him up. My mind goes to hiking with a friend. Yeah, it's peaceful by yourself, but it's dangerous by yourself. It's beautiful images. But there's also not only logical clarity, not only literary artistry, well-chosen words that are delightful, but there's also intellectual integrity. Look how he continues in verse 10. And uprightly, the preacher wrote words of truth. Words of truth, not just about God, who is truth, but about the way life really is. Realistic. You know, we heard someone uh, a moment ago share about having to have a, a tough conversation with someone. You know, helping someone see not just the truth of God's word, which is super important, essential, but also just the truth of like what is up is up and what is down is down. Realistic, pull people out of fantasies and give them a realistic view of life. 
He's writing words of truth about God and about life under the sun. It's utterly realistic. You know, I've, Ecclesiastes helps me believe in the truth of the Bible. Why else would something like this be in here? Of course, it's inspired, as we will talk about in just a moment. So how did he say it? He said it with logical clarity, with artistic beauty, and with intellectual integrity. Now, why did he say what he said? Now, are these words of delight and of these words of truth? I mean, is it just to, to be written? Or, or what's their purpose? What's their purpose? Let's continue. The words of the wise, in verse 11, are like goads. Are like goads. Um, Goad, a, a tool of a shepherd, a stick with some sharp things on the end to kind of prod and to, to spur that stubborn beast to get moving or keep moving. The shepherd is not going to want to injure his animal, but he's going to want to bring about enough pain to get cooperation. So these words from the wise man are, are like goads. It's it, it, they sting us. There's a little bit of pain. Uh, they, they, they're, they're an engine. They, they power us. They move us. These words, the preacher is saying, are like goads. They, they sting us. They spur us on. They move us out. They get us going and they keep us going. And just take a moment to think. Think back in these chapters. What words have you heard that have been a bit uncomfortable as you've thought about them and reflected upon them, and yet you're glad that they were there. Why? Because they got you going. They moved you. They steered you away from going in one direction and steered you into the right path. So they're like goads, but they're also like nails. Like nails firmly fixed, are the collected sayings. Not just words that sting us like goads, but words that stabilize us. The words that, it's this image here of permanence and of something being firmly fixed, something that you can hang on to. You know, the goads, you've heard the expression, a goad to my conscience. Right? It, it, it kind of makes me stop and think and evaluate. Well, there's also being nailed in our conscience as well. They're memorable. We, we never forget. They, they push us forward and they hold us fixed and firm and steady. See, these words have a purpose. They're to, to sting us and to stabilize us as we walk by faith and not by sight. And who does he attribute these words to? They are given by one shepherd. Now, is the preacher talking about himself? Well, no, he's not talking about himself because he, this is the first time you've seen that and he's distinguishing himself from the shepherd and, and he, he's thinking about someone above him and, and behind the words themselves. Uh, Psalm 23, of course, 
the Lord is my shepherd. But here's how Psalm 80 starts off, O shepherd of Israel. God was known as the shepherd of Israel. And here Solomon, the preacher, is attributing that these words that he's written aren't just from him. They're from one shepherd. They're from the Lord. The covenant-making and covenant-keeping God. You know, this is in addition to 2 Peter 1.21 that speaks of the prophets not writing uh, on their own, but they were carried on by the Holy Spirit. This is another great text to demonstrate the inspiration of Scripture. They are given by one shepherd. It's part of the inspired, infallible, and inerrant revelation of Almighty God. And because they're given by one shepherd, they're not just beautiful, they're not just true, but they have authority. I think most of your translations, if they use one shepherd, they, they capitalize it. The one shepherd, the chief shepherd, the great shepherd, the one and only shepherd of Israel, none other than God himself speaking authoritatively. Speaking authoritatively those words that sting us and those words that stabilize us. And isn't that what we need in life, right? We need words that both stop us in our tracks and turn us into the better and right direction. But we also need words in a chaotic, frustrating, stormy world to hold us fast. And God, thank God, he has the words to both move us when needed and to hold us steady when needed. Isn't that wonderful? It's not a one-size-fits-all. You know, if everything looks like, if all you've got is a hammer, everything looks like a nail, right? No, God's word can address the different situations we find ourselves in. But notice how it continues. Verse 12, my son, beware. Wait a minute. We just talked about words of truth, words of delight, beautiful. What? Beware. Beware of anything beyond these, the preacher says, of making many books. There is no end and much study is a weariness of the flesh. Beware of anything. It's his way of saying, build your life on the word of God. Nothing more, nothing less. He's saying also, don't let this pursuit of knowledge enable you to procrastinate doing what you need to do. You know, Paul writes in Timothy about these kind of people, quote, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of truth. Always learning, but never arriving at the knowledge of truth. When he says, beware of anything beyond these, he's, he's saying, be content with what the Bible says. Don't accept anything less and don't demand anything more. You know, I think in our tradition, uh, if we have a default tendency, it's um, we're concerned about not not preaching and teaching the whole counsel of God. And that's a good thing, right? We don't want to 
miss anything. But that, that strength has a corresponding weakness, I think. It tends to add things. Add things to the Bible. I mean, there's a warning at the end of Revelation. Don't add. Don't add. Be content with what the Bible says. Don't accept anything less. Yes, amen. But also don't demand anything more. It's a warning to, go, to not go beyond Scripture. Where I went to a seminary in Philadelphia, Westminster Theological Seminary, has a great theological position paper statement on a particular matter that has some debate um, as to what the Bible teaches, something exegetical. And I want to read just a, a few sentences because I think it, it really uh, is a good example of taking what we read here, beware of anything beyond these. I, I think this is helpful. In it, the faculty says about a particular issue, but to assume that Scripture yields more clearly defined information with respect to this issue than its exegesis may may allow, or worse, to demand that it does, is to mold Scripture to our own concerns and fears rather than to come to it as, to quote John Calvin, our guide and teacher. And then the faculty go on to say this, and I think it's worth reading. The Westminster Confession's doctrine of the clarity of Scripture goes hand in hand with its inspiration, infallibility, and authority. Yet it implies that not all parts of the Scriptures are equally clear or full. Here we must follow Calvin's great motto that where God makes an end of teaching, we should make an end of trying to be wise. Isn't that great? Where God makes an end of teaching... We should make an end of trying to be wise. Don't go beyond. And finally, they say this. This issue may be something which cannot be and therefore is not intended by God to be answered in dogmatic terms. To insist that it must comes dangerously close to demanding from God revelation which he has not been pleased to bestow upon us and responding to a threat to the biblical worldview with weapons that are not crafted from the words which have proceeded out of the mouth of God. In other words, don't go beyond what is written. Well, we've been briefly considered the how and the why of, what, uh, of the, what the preacher said. Well, let's turn to what we should hear. Uh, Now we're at the place of both arrival and departure, a place that you will see is both ethical and eschatological. It's a place that is having to do with moral principles that govern behavior and a place that has to do with the last things, death, judgment, and final destiny. Well, what should we hear? Verses 13 and 14. Let's listen to the concluding command. Verse 13, the end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. Fear God and keep his commandments. It's not the first time the preacher has spoke about fearing God. Fearing God to honor him, to revere him, to love him, to worship him as God. You know, the the children's catechism, the first catechism, has a question and answer that you would think that would be in the 
that would be in the Westminster Shorter Catechism or the Larger Catechism, but it's, it's found there. And it's this question. Um, how can you glorify God? How can you fear God? How can you worship God? How can you glorify God? By loving him and doing what he commands. How great is that for young minds to hear and young hearts to believe? How can you glorify God? By loving him and doing what he commands. And here, this, this last command, this com- concluding command, is there, there's a, a concluding rationale or reason. Why? Why fear God and keep his commandments? Well, the preacher says this, for this is the whole duty of man. Literally, the Hebrew says, this is the whole of man. We insert duty to kind of make it make sense. In other words, the preacher is saying, this is what life is all about. This is the bottom line. What is the chief end of man? Right? It's that basic, that central, that comprehensive. This is what life is all about. Fearing God and keeping his commandments. Keeping his commandments. You know, Jesus is is serious about the commandments of God. He is serious about the law of God. He's also very serious about the right interpretation and the right application of the law of God. And we see a good example of that in the Sermon on the Mount where he would say, you have heard it said, but I say to you. The problem wasn't the law, the problem was with the interpretation and the application of the commandments of God. And there's a final warning, a final warning. He doesn't say beware, but he could have. Verse 14, for God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Judgment awaits, whether we are ready now or whether we're working to avoid it. Notice that it's comprehensive. Every deed and every secret thing, your thoughts and my thoughts, casual thoughts, and careless thoughts. You know, do the ends justify the means? You see, what's often hidden are the motives and the methods people use. Motives operate in secret. Methods often operate in secret as well. But do the ends justify the means? You know, folks can have the right ends, but the wrong method or the wrong motive. Every deed and every secret thing. I couldn't help but think about video, right? The proliferation of smartphones. Everybody's got a camera, right? And if you're a criminal or in law enforcement, most likely now your deeds are being recorded. 
But you know what's interesting about the, the recording of the deed by God? It's not going to be edited. God's not going to just be shown a clip. Because you can make things say via a clip, an edited video that, of what it's actually not saying. But when it says every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil, it is, it is unedited video. You know, I couldn't help but think of um, Jesus who in his ministry, would, they would, it would often say he knew their hearts. He knew their hearts, you know. Uh, the Pharisees had a zeal to keep the law, but in their zeal to keep the law, what did they do? They broke the law. Isn't that interesting? Wanting to uphold a commandment, they break other commandments along the way. And Jesus could see through that because he saw every secret thing. Judgment. You know, the great thing about preaching and going through a book is you don't get to skip stuff that's uncomfortable, right? It's there. We've got to address it. You see, judgment is going to be good news for some people, and it's going to be bad news for others. Jonathan Edwards, in a sermon entitled The Excellency of Jesus Christ, speaks of Jesus being the Lamb and the Lion of God. Where do we get that? From Scripture. Jesus is the Lamb of God. Jesus is the Lion of God. And, and a summary of, of this sermon is this. Edwards is telling his hearers, you approach Jesus as the Lamb of God, and he will be a lion defending you. But reject him as the Lamb of God, and he will become a lion against you. You know, our adult class has been studying this great book, Gentle and Lowly, The Heart of Christ for Sinners and Sufferers. And, and how do you find Jesus the judge actually being gentle and lowly? You come to him. Just like Jesus says, you, you come to me, he says. You, you come to me now and you will find me gentle and lowly or... You don't come to me and you will find me to be the judge on the last day. These last verses are where we've arrived. But they're also where we can put all of Ecclesiastes to good use as we walk by faith and not by sight. In Isaiah 55, we read, My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways. <laughs> Ecclesiastes, at least for me, and I would trust probably for you, is in some ways helping you see the truth of that statement of God, that his thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways his ways. God always knows the best way may not be the shortest way, may not be the most obvious way. The Lord's way is always right and always best for his people. And what is the right way? And what is the best way? And what is indeed the only way for God's people? It's faith 
in Jesus Christ. You see, what are we called to do? We're called to fear God. How do we do it? Through faith in Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus lived for you. Jesus died for you. He was actively obedient in his life of perfect obedience. And he was, as it were, it's a bad way to say it, but passively obedient in going to his death on the cross for you. We fear God, we obey Him, we love Him, we worship Him, we trust Him, we honor Him, we revere Him, we fall down in worship and adoration through faith in Jesus. And the good news is we face judgment. We face the judgment of God through faith in Jesus. I think we sang this a few weeks ago. We come, O Christ, to you. Because indeed, that's what Scripture is always doing. It's calling us to come to Christ. Calling us to trust Him. We come, O Christ, to you. And and here's what we read in verse 1, I believe. Or one of the verses. In you we face our judge and maker unafraid. Before the throne absolved we stand. Your love has met your law's demand. Look at that last verse, for God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. My friends, none of us is able to face God and survive except through faith in Jesus. And so what we all need in ways big and in ways small, in a comprehensive look and in the details We really do need more of Ecclesiastes and less of everything else that takes our eyes off of Jesus. Let's pray. Our great God and Heavenly Father, we do thank you for these 12 chapters, these 222 verses of your holy, inspired, inerrant, infallible word. Father, we thank you that these words that we have read and heard and studied and meditated on, they indeed are words of of delight, beautiful words. They're also words of truth. They, 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 They tell us about who you are and how your world works. And Father, they are words that both sting us and stabilize us. Oh, Father, be pleased to continue to provide your word and your spirit to your people so that we can indeed walk by faith, live by faith in this sinful, fallen, frustrating world as we head home to be with you forever. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.